Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Maranzio Vance has appeared on Jamie Foxx's Laugh-A-Palooza, Last Comic Standing, and The Tonight Show, and put out a half-hour special on Comedy Central, back when those credits seemed to mean something. Vance has released a double album of comedy called 20, out on Blonde Madison. The album's title refers to the 20 years he has spent in Los Angeles since leaving his native North Carolina. We talk about how the pandemic has changed his hair, as well as on his outlook on life and comedy, with words of wisdom from Patrice O'Neill, Cat Williams, Mike Probiglia, Christopher Titus, Paul Mooney, Daniel Tosh, Arnez J, George Wallace, and more, plus the backstory and potential future of Vance's working relationship with basketball star Ron Artest, or Metal World Peace, or perhaps both of them. So let's get to it! Life has changed in the sense I'm not... As a comic, you have to allocate enough time in your day to do the things you need to do, but your focus is, I'm waiting on my spot for tonight. Like, I got to perform tonight, so that means I got to be done with everything I want to do or need to do by a certain amount of time because I need to go home, I need to find something to wear, get dressed, go over my jokes, and then get to the venue in time to decide if I'm going to try to go up early, bump somebody maybe, see if I can get some more time. Cause that's your whole goal is the end of the day. Right. And not having to do that and realize that I really got a lot of fucking free time on my hand. <laughs> like a lot of like so much free time that I'm like, I, I feel like I probably should have done more with my life other than just get ready for the next spot. Well, you just put out a double album. So that I have not listened to. It's, 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 well, you don't have to listen to it. You did all the talking on it. Yeah, other people should be listening to it. People ask me, "Have you listened to your album?" I don't. I don't know what's on it. I, I some people call call me like, "Oh, the joke you did about such and such." I'm like, "That's on there." And I'm like, "Yeah." I'm like, because a lot of the jokes I was still developing. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dom was like, "Yo, you want to do another album?" Because this is my this is only my second album. I did the first one in 2014 when he was at rooftop and I had done my half hour with comedy central and I was waiting on, I was waiting on comedy central to offer me a deal, you know, to say, look, you tried a half hour with us. Right. Do comedy album with us, but it never happened. And then Joanne Grigioni was like, I want to do your hour. And I was like, I got it. If you're ready for it. And she was like, well, let's look at it. And then she left and went to Netflix or whatever. Right. She went to Netflix, Netflix. Yeah. Yeah, Netflix only wants the hottest, and I'm not hot. So, have they that. seen? Have they seen this hair though? Some pretty Man, hot hair. I'm going through a. Uh, you know what it was? I had a lot of gray hair in my head, and I was in this pandemic. I was like, I got to do stuff that's out of my comfort zone to keep me. I hear game. that. <laughs> I just saved it. I just saved it this afternoon. Really? Yeah. Is that your first time doing it? No, I did it at the beginning of the pandemic. Okay. Just, just because, like you said, I'll, I'll bet. Where am I going? Up. No one's going to see me. You know, you can do anything. You can try anything. 
my agent sent me an audition the day after I colored my hair. And I was like, wow, that is, that's not going to go over the way you think it's going to go over, buddy. Cause I, this cost me $47 to do it. So I'm going to let this ride out until it's gone. And he was like, okay. I said, yep. That's about the response I expected you to say, cause I'm not changing it. You know, I've only done two things crazy with my hair. One, I let, this is the second craziest thing I did. When I was 18, I shaved my head bald. I had a whole full head of hair, but I just shaved the bald because I was like, let's see what it looks like. I look yeah. like I look like anorexic Kobe Bryant. <laughs> like <laughs> at 18, I was like a very smaller version of this and with a 12-year-old face and bald headed, like I look like I was eligible for kidnapping at any moment. <laughs> so I was waiting for the hair to grow back immediately. Well, I like I the, I, I like the look you're rocking now. I think, I think it, it could actually get you more parts just because you know, it's I, a, a different, it's a different look than people are expecting. I'll be honest. I did it because one, I did it to shock my son. Cause this is out of, this is out of character for a father to be like, I'm going to dye my hair green. And my son was like, what, dad's dying his hair green? He, you know, he's cool. Mm-hmm. Two was, I live by myself in a neighborhood that I don't like because it doesn't have any life in it other than people just survive. You know what I mean? Like, there's no culture in the sense of, like, there's no camaraderie. There's no neighbors hanging out together. No one's sitting in their yards, you know, separate from each other but also close enough where they can hear each other have conversations like i'm from the south so i go home and i see that people like sitting in the yards they're talking right sitting on the porch yeah Yeah. out here that doesn't happen so my neighborhood doesn't have that you got people smoking weed in their apartment complexes on their stoops or whatever there's no kids playing so there's no culture and i live by myself and i just been like bored lonely then I went through depression and then I came out of it and then I got depressed again and I came out of it and I got depressed again because I was like what are we doing like this whole I was like what are we doing like this country you know I think I was mad at my manager because my manager was like yo let's keep auditioning let's keep trying to get into tvs and movies I'm like the fuck for like people can't work the whole purpose of entertainment is to get people to consume and purchase shit. You know, I got a job. There's 40 million people unemployed. Some people are going back to work. And the people that, that aren't employed, they're getting unemployment. And that money's allotted to buying PlayStation 5s mm. and, and whatnot, you know. So I was like, I felt bad that I was being pushed to continue to do something for people who are not wise enough to know that I probably shouldn't partake in this because I can't, but there's something about us constantly needing to be entertained. that just wore heavy on me. Cause now was like a time for you to like, just let's, let me just find out who I am. Let me find out what I'm interested in. I know people that went into real estate, comics, real estate, found other professions to do. Right. To survive. You know, yeah, some female comics did OnlyFans page. I don't know how I don't know how you come back from an OnlyFans page and then say, I'm gonna go back to comedy. It's like I don't know how you do that. I don't We're gonna find out. 
Yeah, we're going to find out. That's like if I went to porn and like I, I pandemic happened. I just went to porn because it seemed like the safe route. But now pandemic is over. I'm back to comedy now. No, but but you know you raise a good point. I mean, now that we're a year into the pandemic, even though things are starting to open back up, you know I'm in New York City, and at least here the comedy clubs opened up this past weekend. But that's that's still a full year where comedians, along with everybody else, had a chance to kind of get quiet and reflect and think about, well, one, what are you going to do to survive? But also, what do you want to do? So it made me take a long look at it. It also made me take a look at it made me take a look at the industry because managers and agents, they don't make any money if they don't have clients. Hmm to eat off of. And if you're a comic, you can podcast now, you can do your own Zoom shows. Like, we shouldn't have to have managers and agents dictate our moves. Um, Rest in peace, Patrice O'Neill, one of my best friends. And I talked to Tony Rock the other day, and he was like, uh... Are you mad you're not in the Patrice O'Neill documentary? I said at first I was because I love that guy. Like, that's my friend. We talked on the phone longer than I talked to my father. We talked on the phone one day for four hours. I ain't talked to my father on the phone for four hours in 10 years. So Me neither. We had conversations. Right. He talked, we took, he took me on the road. Patrice kind of shaped who I became as a comic because we did Fort Lauderdale Improv. And he watched me perform. He's sitting in the back. His hat on, the jacket, looking like a mafia guy. He's watching my set. He's looking. You can see him laugh a little bit. And then when I get off stage, we go in the green room. He shuts the door. Let me talk to you for a second. I'm like, what the fuck did I do? I'm about to get fired. I'm about to get kicked off the show. He said, what are you doing on stage? I said, just telling jokes. But yeah, but what are you doing? I don't know what you mean. He said, stop being in love with your genius. Like, stop being, stop being impressed. Or stop wanting people to be impressed with the fact that you're funny. Just do it. Stop trying to be these long pauses, whatever. Just, just perform. Just get to it. Stop fucking around and get to it. And I took that advice, man. And Sean, I went on stage the second show. And I thought about everything he said, and I cut the fat off, so to speak. And it was just as good, if not better. And then we sat in the... You ever been to Fort Lauderdale Improv? No, I haven't been to that club, though. They have a... The club is connected to the casino, you know, the restaurants and the hotels are. And then we sat in this cafe, Blue Something Cafe. It's 24 hours. And we were eating we were ordering to eat and he he told me the story about how he hates diabetes like like he did an elephant in the room like i hate it it's a disgusting disease it's debilitating i gotta think about everything i gotta eat we had that conversation like he told me how he felt about food there and i saw him put it into his set and i was like the f- like <laughs> how did you do that you know what i mean like you took something you were angry and upset about and you figured out a way to 
make it a thing. And that's what I started doing. I started taking the things that annoyed me and bothered me. Like, I'll be a different person after this comedy album. Because I burned a lot of material. Right, it's a double album. Yeah, yeah, I burned a lot of material. I burned a lot. I burned a lot. And I, I held on to it because I was like, I want to do this in my special. The special may never come. You know, I can't wait on Netflix. I can't wait on Amazon. I can't wait on HBO. Do I think I deserve it? Yeah, but what if you you're not a comic if you don't think you deserve, you know, the platform. But I think I put in the work and the time and you know, I got my community service hours in. Mm. But I didn't it didn't happen and I was like, I'm not gonna just I need to be able to get rid of this so the stuff that I really want to talk about, I can start talking about it. And that's why I am, because a part of me is like, do I want to get rid of that joke? When when, when I'm going to use it? And then when the pandemic happened, I was like, the world that I came from may not even exist when it starts up again. So these jokes that I was telling before the pandemic may not be, it may be irrelevant. They may be out of touch. They may even be insensitive to the world we're going to be living in. So I didn't know. So I was like, let me just get rid of it. See what happens. So have you heard the voice of Patrice or anybody else in your head as you're trying to think of what you want to do coming out of the pandemic? Patrice. It, I, I hear dead or alive. When I need inspiration, I listen to Patrice. He's in my top five. Um, I hear I hear Cat Williams. I hear Cat Williams because I did a show with Cat Williams just before he was Cat Williams, and then he became uh, Cat Williams. Like he went through a phase. <laughs> he's he been through a like, lot. Of, he's been through a lot of phases. He went for like Cat Williams, Cat Williams, Cat Williams. Like it, like all the stages of death, grief, depression, sad, like acceptance. He's been through it all. He came up to me one day. Uh, Maranzio, when you start to get funny, niggas gonna stop talking to you. They're gonna get. You're just gonna become unfollowable. Unfollowable is not a word, but he said it. <laughs> and he just said, "Keep doing you." And I didn't know what the fuck does that mean. Keep doing you because you don't know where you. I'm 44 years old and I'm just figuring out what I want to talk about on stage. Not being afraid to be who I am not being afraid to talk about the things, my trauma, my childhood, depression, relationships. Like I'm a 44 year old man. I talk about how I don't want to be lonely, but there's a possibility that I'll be lonely because comedy is a lonely man's game. You know, long days, long nights, you're working on jokes. You try to have a relationship, the person you date, hoping that they don't become a part of your act, you know, or, I question anybody who's like, are you going to use me in your act? As in like, please do it. I'm like, you're the wrong person. You should <laughs> not want this. You should not want me to talk about you the way I want to talk about you on stage. You're, you're a masochist. So I, I've learned Bill Burr's in my head. Cause I'll talk to Bill. I'll see Bill occasionally. I saw him last night. He did not recognize me because of this shit. Like this, first of all, my hair has never been this long ever i let it grow out 
and then he hadn't seen me, so my face was my had the mask on and mm-hmm. I had the hair. So he like, what's up, buddy? And he kept moving. But Bill is in my head, Patrice is in my head, um, Cat Williams is in my head, Tony Rock is in my head. Um but mostly me. That's in my head. Um then I, I started studying comedy again. Like I went back I went back to look at the people that inspired me in the beginning. I did, I did that deep dive. Like I, uh, I watched Ruby Goldberg's hour special she did in HBO on Broadway. I watched Stephen Wright. I watched a lot of Stephen Wright because he has influence over me. Mitch Hedberg has a lot of influence over me. Um, I watched Bob Newhart. Ooh. I like Bob Newhart. I'm a storyteller. You know who my favorite comic is right now living? Mike Babiglia. I don't, yo. Yeah, he's a. Dude, look, a storyteller like I've never seen. The most non threatening storyteller I've ever <laughs> seen. Like, he's the he's IT guy that works at Starbucks that just comes out on the stage, and then I have a story to tell. Yeah, and then he's just fucking. <laughs> Right, and then he's dressed like he just like he's going to a picnic after he's done with his I show. Know. It's nothing. I, I was there too. <laughs> I'm watching his last special, <laughs> like the new one with the baby. Mm-hmm. We're having a baby, and I was like, "Do you want to have a baby with these people with the symptoms?" I'm like, <laughs> but it's his audience, and that's the thing that we have to just focus on. I don't give a fuck how many people Kevin Hart has as a follower. I don't want 100 million followers. I don't. It gives me anxiety to think that 100 million people are waiting on me to entertain them every moment of the day. Like, they're just sitting by their phone like, is he going to post? Is he going to post? I don't want that, man. I thought Gerard Carmichael was crazy when he got rid of his social media, but he's still succeeds without social media and i don't know if that's a millennial thing where like man i ain't following the crowd but we're so me and Roywood jr used to have a conversation about how the grocery line to success used to be just one line you just you do late night you do your half hour you do your hour then you do your tv show and then it's off to the then you just off to the races right you you mc you feature then you headline you do this you do that you do that now, you got your own self-checkout line. You got a line where, you know, you can go through a line with somebody. You don't even have to go to a store now. You can have the shit delivered to you. So it's so many different ways to make it. And as a veteran, as an older person in the comedy, I used to get angry because I was like, why are they doing it that way? We were supposed to do it this way. And they're like winning. And it's like, mm. and we, you're the old guy shaking your hand at the cloud. Like, why the fuck is it like this? And you still kind of you still try to do the old blueprint way, and it don't work. Cause I've done everything. I've done the, the five minute spots on late night. I've done the half hour. I've been on a sitcom. And then I'm still like, why don't I have what I thought I was supposed to get? But then I think I'll get it now because I know what I want, and I don't want everything that I was told I should have. You right. I, I I was just about to say it's like before the pandemic. 
you were on a couple of sitcoms. I mean, the one that I loved the most was Enlisted, which was a great show that just did, never got the chance that it should have. Yeah. And uh, But then you bounced back from that, and you got a, a gig on uh, George Lopez's TV okay. Land show, which ran for two seasons. So that's, that's, I have fun, that's nice, nice money, a nice gig, nice residuals. But it, I, you know what it was? I felt like everything I was doing was a second too late. Because like when I did Late Night, it was Leno, but it was the second Leno. So it wasn't even the original Late Night run. It was The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, you know, because he got mad. He wanted his show back. He got his show back. Then I did it. And then, no, no, no. It wasn't before his show. No, it was before his show ended. But it was at that run where, you know, Sean, nobody gave a fuck about late night after a certain time. And then I got my half hour. It was also at a point where no one gave a fuck about half hours anymore because, you know, everybody had done them or they were saturated. Right. And I was like, I want to do an hour. Then I was like, do I really want to do an hour? Like, who's going to watch a whole hour of somebody that isn't as well known as Chappelle or Bill Burr? It's just another hour. Then it's like, how many comments have a fucking hour that you want to listen to? Maybe five. <laughs> maybe, maybe five people on the planet. You'll say, I'll sit here for a whole hour and listen <laughs> to what this person, at, Bill Burr, Chappelle. I could barely get through Seinfeld's last hour. Like I, I got through it, but Bronzio, like, <laughs> we're trying to we're trying to book comedy clubs. I, I mean, you and I aren't, but yeah, <laughs> the, the industry wants you to go to comedy clubs to hear <laughs> hear people speak for an hour. You can't be telling them there's only five. <laughs> there's only, there's only maybe five ten. that you actually want to sit through. Maybe ten. Like, but I'm just saying, as far as no, I, 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 I agree with you. I'm just laughing because it's you it's, part of, it's part of it's part of this business. It's a it's a strange business. It is, and. I I looked at it during the pandemic like it was a it's a marriage that I'm halfway through it and I'm like do I do I divorce this chick and go do something else I don't know how to date anymore I'm dressed like this nobody wants to date a guy that's dressed like this let me just make it work with the person that I'm with now so like I've come to this stage where I'm like let me just make it work I'll do it the way I want to do it and just be happy with what it is that I have or what I, what I create for myself. So there we go. You, you know, I, I love that you, you mentioned like comedians as like as far away from each other, but yet, but yet kind of similar as Cat Williams and Mike Verbiglia because they're both kind of storytellers, but like Mike is like, He's like, you know, <laughs> your basic white guy. And then Kat is like... A sweaty ball of energy. But not just that. Like, because I've, you know, you know him and I've been able to talk to him over the years. He's, he's not only all of the things that you've seen about him on TMZ in the tabloids, but he's also gone through so many other things that haven't made right. TMZ or the tabloids. But then he came back with a Netflix special that was still like one of the best specials of the year when it came yes. out. So it's like... he get, You know what? I, I tell people, you say what you want to say about Kat, 
but he's Kobe. He leaves it all on the stage. He when he's done performing, the perm is gone. He's sweating. The clothes look like he's been dipped in water. And he, I'm just gonna give it all to you. And then he just go. He had one special with a fucking tiger in it. It was fearless or something he did in Ontario. <laughs> he spent fifty thousand dollars to get a tiger that he didn't even use. He just had it on the stage. <laughs> and I was like, what the fuck are you doing, cat? Like, pocket that money. Go buy your own tiger. Why is there a tiger? Right. And then on and, and then on the other end of the spectrum from that, you've opened for Paul Mooney, who just sits on the stool. My working with I wanted to write a book about Paul Mooney gave me the idea. Two things happened with Paul Mooney that no three things really that happened that nobody could take from me. It's just just a great conversation. We we were in San Francisco, we did um cops. Mm-hmm. And after we left Cobbs, because he's from the Bay Area, so he's like the god in the Bay Area. He like walking down the street, and we go to this jazz club, and we're sitting in this jazz club. A woman's playing behind us. We're sitting at the bar. We order some drinks, and when I was younger, I would always take my pad out and I would just write out my set that I just did when I was done, and be like, "All right, this, 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 okay." And then he's sitting next to me. And he's like, you know that joke you do about uh, about the slavery and everything? You should probably say this and then put that in there. And, he's, and I'm like, I'm shocked. I'm like, you pay attention? <laughs> One, you pay attention. Two, you're giving me advice on how to make a joke better. Three, you did this for Richard. I'm good. <laughs> like, it's, it came full circle. Like, I'm getting advice from a guy who, give, who used to give advice to the guy. Like, nobody can take that from me. The second thing was we did Addison Improv and Dick Gregory was in the audience. I didn't know Dick Gregory was in the audience and I'm glad I didn't because I probably would have performed for Dick Gregory, like really try to go extra hard. And I got off stage and after Paul performed, Dick Gregory came up to me and we talked for like, I talked to Dick Gregory for 20 minutes. This guy had a conversation with me. He told me he liked my act. He told me what I was doing. I never heard of you before. Took a picture with me. I got a picture with me, Dick Gregory, and Paul Mooney. I'm I'm so good. Like I'm it's just it was my it was highlights of my career that I didn't pay attention to because my goal was I'm looking at the chick over there. I'm not looking at the chick that's talking to me. I'm looking at the, I'm like, that's the chick I really want to talk to, which is like the hour special, the sitcom, the movie deal, all that shit, three arts, the whole big nine. And I'm like, ah, yeah, 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 I hear what you're saying. But I'm, I'm really trying to get to this. And it's like Dick Gregory's in front of me. My, Paul Moon's in front of me. I'm having these crazy conversations. And I just couldn't believe it. But working with Paul was the roughest, but most uncomfortable, fun time in my life. Because Paul would offend people. We did Philadelphia. And he said something in the crowd. These white guys was, woo! They was hot. You know how Philly is. We waiting for him. The guys were like, we're going to wait for him to come outside. They were going to jump Paul Mooney. I had to go get the club manager. I said, hey, man, these guys, they're trying to jump Mooney. They want to fight Mooney after the show or whatever. And they said, where? And they pointed him out. I said, yo, you guys got to leave or whatever. No, no, no. We want to stay. We want to talk to the guy. Never. 
Paul didn't know that he was going to get his ass beat until after he had sold his CDs and everything. I said, you know, guys waiting for you after the show to beat your ass. And he's like, where were they? I'm waiting on them. No, you're not. No, you're not. You are 60 years old. You do not want to fight with a 30, with a 25 year old kid that got, don't give a fuck about life. You don't. But working with Paul was wonderful. Working with Patrice was wonderful. I worked with Christopher Titus. Yeah. Which was wonderful. Nice guy. Nice. And one of the best storytellers to ever step on stage. Never seen anything like it. he cranks out material like he's a fucking fabric store. Um, Tom, I worked with Tom Wilson. Biff from Back to the Future. <laughs> Had to be clean the whole show. It was so uncomfortable. It was so uncomfortable. What do you what do you think it says about you that you've worked for such a varied list of celebrities and greats, all time greats? And I, you know what? If I was paying attention at the time, I would have, I would have, I guess, embraced it more. Like I worked with Paul. Paul Reiser called. Uh, Paul Reiser called uh, Richard. Barrett that runs the Comedy Magic Club. Mm-hmm. He said, "Hey, what was that guy's name? Uh, Moranzio." He said, "Yeah, yeah." Hey, you think he you think he would open for me? What? <laughs> yes, bitch. What are you talking about? <laughs> yes, he called me and we did a casino together, and it was wonderful. I I work. I got to eat dinner with Gary Shanley. Um, mm. I uh. Did the Comedy Magic Club one night. I was headlining. Richard came up to me and said, Seinfeld may drop by tonight, so I may have to get you off stage early. Cool. Seinfeld, I'm getting fucked. Seinfeld showed up. He watched me finish my... He's, he watched me finish my set. And when I came off, he's running like, hey, I saw you. Very funny. I'll talk to you after the show. He went on stage, did 15 minutes, made everybody forget whatever the fuck I did for 45 minutes. <laughs> but he got off stage and we sat in the green room me, him Carol Leifer Jim Edwards and Jim Brogan and I'm sitting in this room talking to them talking to Seinfeld as if our our bank accounts are not drastically different he just talking yeah yeah so where you from? talking I've been, he's like, oh, I've been working on this bit and I finally got a, the closing for it. I like tonight. And I was like, okay, cool. I liked it. Like, what I'm going to say? No, you could have done better. I, it's, it's Seinfeld. I, and I fucked it up because I asked for a picture. He didn't have a problem with it, but I could have just left it there. You know what I mean? Like, I could have right. just been like, you know what? I hung out with Seinfeld. 20 minute conversation that no one would probably ever believe or the average person wouldn't be able to have the opportunity to have. I'm grateful now, like at my age now, I'm grateful at the things that I've experienced. I'm grateful for the people that I have worked with. I'm grateful for the opportunities. Uh, like I've been in front of, I've, I've opened for like Daniel Tosh. Tosh is great. You know, as far as like, he's professional. He taught me how to pack on the road. When I first started doing comedy, I used to try to wear a different outfit every show. Not anymore. What the fuck was I doing packing five pair of pants <laughs> and five shirts and five pair of socks? And I, what the fuck was I doing? Now on the road, 
two outfits. One I wear on stage and the one I wear around when I'm in the town. Outside of it, fuck it. <laughs> I wish I would pack 15 outfits to do <laughs> Cleveland improv ever again. Uh, you know, I, I think it would be fun, though, if we had more stand-ups who had costume changes. In between the act? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. What, what are you doing? Oh, yeah, my third act, I got to wear uh, this glitter outfit. Or maybe, what? I mean, maybe, maybe it's something just for the MC. So every time the MC comes back up on stage, he or she is wearing something different. The MC, yes. Just like, just like you're hosting the Oscars, you're, you're hosting the, the Addison yes. Improv. It's the same, the same concept. Outfit. But for me, I went, we did, me, me and Taj did a, 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 a venue in San Francisco. It was going to be five days. And he had a luggage, like, 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 a, like a bowling bag. Not nothing big. I said, well, uh, where's your clothes? I was in the bag. All of it? Yeah. Okay. He pulls out a shirt, pair of pants. When he performs, as soon as he's done performing, he takes it off, hangs it back up, wears the shit the next night. And I'm like, you do this all the time? He's like, yes. What the fuck have I been doing? Right. If you're if you're not a physical act, so if, so if you're not like bouncing around and sweating a lot, you're really only wearing those clothes for a couple hours a night. So yeah, I think it, may, the most, it makes sense once you once you think about it. Oh God! But when you're young, you don't know because you want to make an impression. You want to look good. You want you, you're trying to you know I don't know what it was, man. I remember. Fort Lauderdale Improv, again, I think this time I was working with Arnez J. I don't have an Arnez, I don't have a good Arnez J story. So I FedExed my clothes to me, <laughs> to the hotel. I fed it because I was like, we got six shows. No, he has seven shows. I got seven shows. I'm going to have to double up on some clothes. So let me FedEx my clothes. I FedEx my clothes to me <laughs> because I needed that many outfits. Such and the only reason I fed is because my buddy worked at a he worked in the mail room at the Bank of America and he just could ship shit for me for free. So I was like, okay. he like, send me a label and he sent me a label. I put it on the box and sent it and <laughs> clothes being shipped to me like a dumbass. And the club is like, you haven't what shipped to you? A box. Well, also also stand up is is a little bit more casual now. So completely, it's not like when I was you know when I was first getting involved in comedy in the mid nineties. There were still a lot of a lot of guys wearing suits on stage. So, oh my god, Ricky Smiley wanted me to wear a suit for him. He came up to me like, "Where's your suit? What? You're featuring for me? Where's your suit? I don't got no fucking suit. What are you talking about? I like my people to wear suits. Okay. Well, if you pay me good enough, I'll go buy a suit." <laughs> But I'm not about to go buy a fucking suit tomorrow. Right. I'm trying to I'm I'm trying to remember what the thought was. I think there were two there were two lines of thought. One was that you want to dress as if you're doing Johnny Carson or Letterman. Mm-hmm. So you're wearing it you're wearing a suit as practice. Or you're wearing the suit because people paid twenty bucks for a ticket and then they're getting two drinks and you you want them to think that they paid for a show and not just 
Yeah. To see some guy in his t-shirt and jeans. Yeah. When, when I saw that Louis could be successful looking like he just got off a construction working job and go straight to the comedy club with a t-shirt and some jeans and some new balance on, I said, fuck it. Then I see Mike Bigley addressing like an IT guy and like, fuck it. Like this, your outfit is an extension of your personality. I don't wear suits, so I would not wear a suit to talk to people. I get it. Professional, come out on stage. I'm not John Mulaney, man. I can't come out on stage. Mm-hmm. How's everybody doing? I'm having a great time. I'm doing these jokes. I'm standing here in Bardville. I, who am I? What the fuck am I doing, man? But you, know, but, you know, you, you just mentioned Louie, and, you know, it reminds me, like, it doesn't matter what you look like, because in the end, you know, you can have great comedy. You can You can wear stuff flashy stuff but in the end we've all learned that it, it comes down to also comes down to what kind of person you are because the legacies of louis ck of bill cosby of woody allen you know dozens of other people who aren't aren't as legendary but but have, have made done. lots of but have made lots of money and made lots of criminal yeah criminal criminal acts in in the years and you know that's what people will remember of you it's, right, they don't, they don't remember the jokes. They go, "Oh yeah, I've only worn a suit one time on stage." I worked, I worked with the late Robert Schimmel. Great oh. guy. He was so cool. Like, I hate I didn't know him better, and I hate I didn't know him longer. But he died like months later after I had worked with him, because he and I, he and I had the same manager at the time. And my manager was like, "You want to feature for Robert in Vegas?" This is when um. Andrew Dice Clay had his residency. I think it was at the the Riviera. It's not there anymore, but we did the Riviera together. But Robert was sick. You could tell Robert was sick. Mm-hmm. But we sat in the hotel room. We ate dinner. We talked. Like he was just. You could just tell he was a guy who meant well. Who had who was just trying to chase acceptance. Like I, I know I fucked up. Let me make it right. Type of situation. You know how we we seeking redemption, but we just don't know how. We want to make amends. We want to correct the wrongs we've done. And you, it's like cleaning your house. You can't clean your whole house one at one in one day and get it all done. Just find one section, clean your living room first, then clean your, the kitchen tomorrow, the bathroom, whatever. But you can't do it. And he was trying to do it all. And, and then it just fell apart. You know what I mean? But I wore a suit for him because it was Vegas. And, he, you know, they requested you wear a suit. I felt like a smuck on stage. I was like, I like a, I like a fucking Paul Bear telling jokes. It was just never fucking Easter Sunday at church doing announcements. <laughs> Disgusted. <laughs> Although some of those people can be funny giving the Easter announcements. They can be funny. Yeah, I mean, when I was in church and I had to do the Easter announcements, I was like, if I'm going to stand up here and recite this shit, I'm going to have fun with it <laughs> at the expense of Jesus. <laughs> so uh so before we we wrap up you know your album is called 20 based on the fact that you've you've survived 20 years of Los Angeles. Yeah. Do you see yourself staying in LA now or no? I I don't so I don't see myself staying here but I also don't know where I would go. Like 
I was like trying to go somewhere where I could get the fuck away from like the industry, but still be able to do what I want to do. I was like, I'm gonna go to Nashville. Fucking 50 comics moved to Nashville. 50 of them. They moved from here. So it's like they just took their shit. And they're gonna go to Tennessee to try to make Tennessee be like a Southern Hollywood, which I have no interest. Then you had a whole bunch of comments move to Austin, Texas. I wouldn't have moved to Texas. I wouldn't give a fuck for nothing. <laughs> but comments moved to Texas. A lot of comments moved to Vegas because it's affordable. A lot of comments moved to Arizona because Arizona is a cheap California. Right. I don't. I don't know what I'm gonna do. I don't want to go. I'm. You know, I'm originally from North Carolina. I don't want to go back to North Carolina because you know. And it could be a little bit of ego in the sense of I moved back. I'm not, I'm not special anymore because I'm the guy that used to live in LA. Now he's back home with everybody else. So it's kind of like, oh, you're back. Didn't work out for you. I don't want to hear that shit because then, then I'll go to jail for killing something. <laughs> and nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. Not me, especially. Um, I don't know, man. Like I'm, 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 I'm in the process of, um, I developed the animated show during the pandemic a show that I had been sitting on. Sean, I've been working on the same projects for 10 years. Like when, when, when Jordan Peele said that it took me 10 years to write Get Out, I thought he was joking. It takes that long to get something done because the universe is testing you to see how much you believe in what it is that you want to do, to see how long you will ride it out. I had pitched a TV show. I was writing on the uh, reboot for In Living Color. And during the time, Ron Artest was doing comedy. Mm-hmm. Right. The improv was letting him perform in all the clubs in California because that's the only place he could perform at because he was playing for the Lakers at the time. And they were winning games, so he would just go on stage and he would tell some jokes. And if the jokes didn't land, he was like, and we won the title this year. And the crowd was like, yay! Ron Artest ran so Blake Griffin could fly. <laughs> and Blake Griffin is flying <laughs> high off of Ron Artest being the pioneer of comedy or whatever. But Ron Artest saw me perform. Mm-hmm. He came up to me after the show. He was like, yo, uh, you got a manager? I was like, yeah. He said, you should let me manage you. I was like, what? You should let me manage you. But the don't you play football? You play ball, right? Yeah, yeah. But when I go, when I when, like when I play, I'll have other people, you know, doing my day to day stuff, whatever. But I know people. There comes a time where you become desperate when you're like, man, is this what it's gonna take? I guess I'll do it. I didn't get there with him because mm-hmm. I was like, I didn't know how to tell him no because I was like, a part of my mind was like, this guy's gonna choke me out if he don't get the answer that he wants because he's done it before. This footage. <laughs> And he took me out to dinner, mm-hmm. bought me drinks, calling me, texting me, and I kind of like ghosted Ron Artest. What? And then I wrote, I was writing on the reboot, and one of my writing part, one of the writers on the staff, his name was Spencer Porter. I went to him, I said, man, I got a sitcom idea. He said, man, let's just focus on this show. I said, no, listen to me. I want to do a sitcom about Ron Artest wanting to manage me, like my career. And he was like, that's funny. But did that happen? I was like, yes, it fucking happened. I'm not going to say the manager's name that I had at the mm-hmm. time, but I was with Brillstein. And I told my manager, I said, I have a sitcom idea. This is the idea. I, t- I explained the whole thing. 
it's not good. I don't think it's good enough. So once he told me it wasn't good, I just abandoned it. I was like, fuck it. He said it's not good. I ain't gonna do it. Lopez ended after season two. We could we gotta we could have got a season three or a season four, but Lopez got mad that Melissa McCarthy's show Nobody's was getting more press than his show, and our numbers were better than her show, and he decided to go to Instagram and let TV Land know what he thought about them. <laughs> and they were like, you know what? You think we need this show, don't you? Let me show you that we don't. And they didn't pick us up for a second season. I mean, for a third season. So when the show got canceled, I went and dug up the Ron Artest idea again. Because Ron wasn't playing anymore, and he was kind of like poking his head, and he's putting his toe in the water as far as like trying to do entertainment. So mm-hmm. he was like, you know, he was, he did something with Comedy Central. He had done a movie or some shit. So I wrote the idea out, talked to my writing partner, and we sold the idea to uh, Freeform, which was a company owned by Brian Grazer and Ron Howard. Mm-hmm. Kind of like their experimental project. Like they would like let people sign, try out what they do. If they like it, that they would get behind it. Sold the idea in the room to YouTube. Just when YouTube was trying to do scripted shows. All right. So YouTube and Freeform went in. YouTube paid half, Freeform paid the other half. And I went to Ron Artest and I hit him up. I said, hey, buddy, how you doing? Because he wanted to do a podcast with me, too. <laughs> but what happened was he didn't want to manage me. He wanted me to help him make his ideas come to life. So he was like, y'all want to do a podcast? I said, okay, podcasts are hot. This is 2011. Podcast is hot. What you want to do? I want to do a podcast with me and, and, and Meta World Peace. I say, uh, you are Meta World Peace. I know that's what's funny about it. I say, so what do I do? You're going to mediate between the both of us. Oh, no. What? <laughs> if he didn't have that look that he has when he's like four seconds on the clock, I got to hit the game winning shot. I got the eye of the tiger in my face. If he didn't have that look in his face, I thought he was, I would have thought he was joking. But he had to like, yeah, I want to do the podcast and me and Ron Artest and Meta and you uh, be the mediator and you try to like keep us on track. I said, man, I got a great imagination. I think Interstellar is a great movie. <laughs> Tenet would be a great movie if I could understand it. But <laughs> I don't understand what the fuck are you talking about, man? And then he was like, I got some sketches I want to do. I said, okay, what the sketches are? I want to drive to Vegas, but I want to take my toilet seat with me and periodically I want to stop on the side of the road and use the bathroom in that toilet seat. I don't know if any of these ideas are actually funny or if it's only because it's Ron Artest. It's only funny because it's Ron Artest. <laughs> if I went in the net if I went into a network, like Adult Swim or a Cartoon Network and said, Y'all wanna do a sketch about me taking the toilet to Vegas and pissing and shitting along the way and using that same toilet. They wouldn't validate my parking. They would get me removed and they would probably have a picture of me at the security desk say, Don't let this fucking guy in this building. But he was wait, is, wait, wait, is that why you have the green hair? 
Don't let her back in. <laughs> it's not me. I'm, uh, I'm Cat Williams. Um, I didn't. I didn't know how to tell him that these ideas were bad because all his guys around him. He, he came with an entourage. Bro, okay. They were like, "Yeah, man, that's funny. That's funny. Y'all think that's funny, right?" They're like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And I'm like, "Y'all are scared of him. You fucking guys are. You scared of him? There's no way in the world you think this is funny." So. I went to him. I said, look, man, I wrote a TV show. And it's a show about you wanting to be my manager. And he was like, oh, that's right, because I wanted to manage you. I was like, yeah. He said, all right, I'm down. And we shot a pilot, 15-minute pilot presentation. I have it in my possession right now. I never released it. And I'm going to just release it. Like, Complex Sports was wanted to buy it. They wanted to do a TV show with Ron. We could do it's digital. Quib- we won't take it to Quibi, but Quibi lasted as long as their programs. Right. Um, so <laughs> we never got a chance to, to let it off the air, but he still wants to do it. So what I think I'm going to do is I think I'm going to just release it and see what happens. If somebody bites on it, they gravitate to it. I may revisit it. You know what I mean? I've just had it. I've had it. Sean, I've had a very interesting complex journey in comedy and I'm just the pandemic has given me time to think about the good and it's given me time to think about the things that I took for granted to have gratitude for the things that I've been able to do like I performed at Caroline's I performed at the cellar I performed at Cobb I performed at the, the best clubs in the country with some of the best comics to ever do it. And I think that's the goal that you want to do that. It ain't about the money. I don't give a fuck about being on Vulture's top list or whatever. Like, I don't, I don't give a shit about that. Cause comparison is the thief of joy. Like it'll take away the joy from your journey. And that's what Patrice used to tell me all the time. Just enjoy the fucking journey. Fuck the destination. Just enjoy the Cause the journey is what you, going to remember once you get to the destination you're like i'm here now what like the movie soul he got to play with the jazz group and he thought it was going to be more after that and it's not it's not but i've had because of me being in certain places at certain times and people being able to see me on certain platforms it's allowed me to have conversations with people i never thought i would be able to talk to it's allowed me to eat dinner with people i Mario Jordan is one of my best friends and it happened because of comedy. And this is somebody I grew up watching, but I can call Mario Jordan and he'll pick up the phone. That's the money, man. The the relationship that you have, the people that remember you, fans come and go, you know, it's your integrity that you have. Are you a joke thief? Do you go behind people's backs? Like, I don't have none of that on me. I've been called bitter, but I'm not a joke thief. I don't steal people's jokes. I don't try to get people banned from clubs. If somebody asks me if somebody's funny, I'll give my opinion, but it's just my opinion. What the fuck does my opinion matter? You're still working. Mm-hmm. I'm not on the bullhorn saying, oh, this motherfucker's trash. Like, I'm not outside in front of your shows. But if you don't make me laugh, if I don't watch you and I say, man, I wish I'd have thought of that. 
I don't give a fuck. Well, Maranzio, you uh, you make me laugh, thank and you, uh, thank you for thank you for sharing your journey with me. And I appreciate what you do, man. I know and, I know it's, it's hard talking to comics, yeah. trying to get a story out of them. <laughs> Some people try to be secretive and like try to be myst- mysterious and like elusive and like I don't want to talk about like whatever. It's like, I mean, look, it's gonna it's gonna happen. I'm friends with George Wallace, goddamn, like. George Wallace calls me at least once a month just to check on me. Shout out to George Wallace. Shout out. Shout out to George Wallace for just calling me. They're like, well, Rogio, how you doing? I love you. And there's nothing you can do about it. And I'm like, all right. Guess you're going to force love on me now. You're a beautiful person. I love you. And there's nothing you can do about it. Have a great day. These are messages on my phone from George Wallace because he'll call sometimes and I don't answer because what the fuck are we going to talk about? You know, 65 years old. He loved to tell me that Seinfeld is his best friend every time we talk. That's why I think the dementia is kicking in. Because I'm like, you always tell me Seinfeld is your best friend. I fucking get it, George. I get it. You know rich people. What the fuck? <laughs> well, well, you, he knows rich people. You know him. And I know you. And so. At six degrees of separation. It's a, it's a wonderful thing we have. And, uh. I look forward to seeing where your journey takes you. So, thank you, man. Like I said, I, I think where I want to go now. If I had to say, it, I want to do more of what. I want to do more of what, and I hate to say there's no black this, but there's not a black version of Mike Pabiglia. There isn't. There's nobody who does what Mike Pabiglia does as far as like storytelling and these, these journeys. He, he takes personal journeys, like that thing with his kid and afraid to have a child because he got all these mental conditions, mental, medical issues and shit right. and wor- worried about it. Like I, I'm just here to like share my, I can't, I don't want to give my opinion on anything anymore. That's what gets you in trouble going on stage. I don't think and blah, blah, blah. And because you got to live a certain lifestyle so that shit don't come back to bite you in the ass. You know how I many comments are going on stage saying, I would never, and I don't hit women. And then you find out this motherfucker is a serial choker. He chokes women all the time. This is his thing. And you're like, but he said on the stage. Because once you say into a microphone, it's recorded, you're facing it, and the audio matches up and everything. You can't, <laughs> you can't come back from that. But those were jokes. I was just joking. I was just joking about how beautiful 15-year-old girls are. I didn't actually... Just a joke! It was just a joke. And, I had, and then I carried it out to see if I was joking. <laughs> well, the only thing I, I want to see you carry out that's so outlandish are any of those stories from Ron Artest. Oh, my God. <laughs> those are the only outlandish stories I want, I want to hear from <laughs> that have you involved. I promise you... I'm going to call him today because he, he he texted me the other day. And I was like, yo, man, let's, let's, let's do the podcast now. And he's like, oh, really? I said, but not me, you, Ron, and Meta. Let's just do you and me. Let's just talk. And then, you know, maybe some episode, you know, you can step out and then Meta can come in and talk. And we just see what the difference is. Mm. But I can't talk to I can't talk to you and Meta at the same time. <laughs> I'll send you, I'm going to send you the pilot, man. I'm going to send you the pilot so you can see it because at the end of the episode, 
I acknowledge that I don't know what to refer to him as. Like, cause that was the joke the whole entire time. Like, do we call him Ron? Or do we call him Meta? Like, which one is he going to, he'll answer to both, but I know he prefers one. We just didn't know. <laughs> that'll be, ep- that'll be episode two as we find out in episode two. Fuck yes. <laughs> Fuck yes. <laughs> Veronzio, thank you so much. This is great. It, man. Thank you, man. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. Theme music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks first.